Welcome back to another edition of Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when they were just screenplays. My name is Max Davison. I am your host. I'm a writer. I'm a reader. And uh, I'm a man with, whose life is in a bit of a turmoil, uh, kind of like, like Britney Spears in 2002. I'm at a crossroads. Uh, as you know from listening to the show, I work as a script reader at a major studio. And uh, for this week, uh, I can't say what studio, but imagine a giant roaring lion. And that lion happens to be standing in front of a gate. Anyway, as you might remember from last week, uh, shit was about to get real. Uh, the production company that I read for was uh, moving forward on a script called Thaw. It's a detective movie. Uh, I don't want to get into it right now. But the news that they had talked to Antoine Fuqua to direct had leaked to Deadline Hollywood. And uh, they were looking for who the leak was. Uh, and wh- while I did mention that uh, that piece of news on this podcast, I don't think that I leaked it in a meaningful way. So last week when we left things, uh, I was pretty sure I was about to get fired. I was about to be brought in front of the firing squad, and uh, I was going to lose this job reading scripts at a studio. But that was not the case. Uh, yeah, uh, your boy survived. Uh, it turned out that they really didn't care about the leak. No, they, they, they didn't. In fact, it was probably good publicity, and it worked well to... Uh, get the studio's asking price up. And uh, yeah, they wanted to, in fact, offer me gainful employment working with the art department. Yeah, uh, Thaw is on the fast track. They've got Antoine Fuqua directing. They're talking to Miles Teller to play the titular character Jericho Thaw. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a titular character. And uh, to be honest, today, that cinema sin doesn't seem as egregious. But yeah, they want me to uh, move from the development world into actually seeing what production looks like. So I'm going to be working with the cinematographer or, uh, or art director. Uh, one of those two, I, I should probably figure out the difference. I, I, I have an MFA from USC in screenwriting, but I, I don't know what any parts of the camera do. And uh, yeah, I, sh- I should probably uh, start to learn a little something like that because we're going into production on Thaw. Prior to this job offer, my entire employment, like my five-year plan, was to keep reading scripts here, uh, faking being personable around everybody, and then hoping that somebody would get fired and they would need somebody to fill up that desk. And when there's a vacancy, who's going to be right there? Me, the guy who's been reading scripts here for minimum rate, wage for three years. Uh, but this is working out a lot faster. So uh, I'm actually going to get some hands-on experience. Uh, so what, what this means is that I may have to put this podcast on hiatus. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's been fun. It's been a... it's been an interesting little experiment, but I'm actually going to be involved in the making of a major motion picture. So, uh, geez, this could be the last one for a while. So to celebrate that, I decided to treat myself and treat the listeners as well. I went over to the vault where they keep all of the coverage of any script ever submitted to this studio, and I found a good one. I mean, this one, it's one of the worst movies of all time. It has a Rotten Tomato score of 5%. It makes Top Gun look like Rain Man. And I think this is going to be fun, just really tearing into it. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the Tom Cruise bartending film Cocktail from 1988. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, if I sound a little bit giddy, it's because I am. Uh, I've got a job working in Hollywood, and uh, we're going to tear apart one of the worst scripts of all time. So uh, join me as we look at the original studio notes for Cocktail. Title. Cocktail. Screenwriter, Haywood Gould, based on his novel. Yes, the movie was based on a novel, apparently. Sorry, uh, no more editorializing. Genre, trauma. Page count, 105. Draft date, March 13th, 1987. Logline, 
a young aspiring businessman attempts to find success as a flair bartender, learning from and later competing with his jaded mentor. Comments. Not since Casablanca has the story of a bar owner been so engaging. Cocktail is a clean script, mechanically sound, with a solid hook of the glamorous world of high-end bartending. While not narratively ambitious, the act structure is solid and the characters have clear goals and personalities. The script doesn't struggle too hard to shoehorn a premise. The twists are few but well-executed and plausible. There are no plot holes and no lingering plot threads. Cocktail features a perfect beat sheet, fun and exotic locales, and a marketable premise. This reader can already imagine the one sheet in the marketing campaign, a compliment that he has rarely given to other scripts. Brian Flanagan is a likable protagonist, a cocky everyman, ex-military and working class. He wants to make his way as a businessman in yuppie 1980s New York City. Within the first 10 pages, we already have the setup and Flanagan has a specific goal. He wants to open his own bar, Cocktails and Dreams. The name is a bit on the nose, yes, but we can overlook that as one of the rare instances of movie logic in this script. At a TGI Fridays, Flanagan encounters older bartender Doug Coughlin. He's an experienced bartender with a photographic memory and a knack for armchair philosophy. When paired with Flanagan, we get a father-son dynamic that allows both men to find success where they least suspect. In Act 1, Flanagan refers to Coughlin as his Obi-Wan. In Act 3, Coughlin's suicide note acts like Obi-Wan's ghost, guiding Flanagan on his Death Star trench run to rescue his dream girl. These moments of recurring themes prove that the screenwriter is building a simple yet cohesive story. Flanagan and Coughlin's strengths mirror one another, particularly in the synchronized bartending scene. More on that later. But their flaws also go hand in hand. Their arrogance and focus on material wealth get them both into trouble. While not particularly deep, it is enough to make this a good man-versus-self-conflict for both characters. Yes, the dialogue is a bit corny, but it doesn't try too hard to be clever or insightful. This is quite refreshing. Coughlin often offers looks into Coughlin's Law, a series of rules that he has put together after a long career of bartending. This is a good way of getting out philosophy without being too obvious about it. The script can also embrace camp, such as on page 33, when Flanagan stands on the bar and offers some barman poetry. He is able to capably rhyme sex on the beach with schnapps made from peach. Similarly, the script offers an immersive look into the world of bartending. We learn the lingo, the short pour versus the long pour, and the list of drinks, the pink squirrel, the red eye, the three-toed sloth. On page 24, we get an iconic scene where Flanagan and Coughlin make cocktails by flipping bottles up in the air, synchronized, and set to pop music. This reader cannot remember ever encountering a scene of this caliber before. These sequences could make for great visual set pieces. As stated before, Cocktail features an impeccable beat sheet with a clean first act break, midpoint break, and second act break. The relationship between Flanagan and Coughlin has ups and downs, but everything tracks. In Act 1, Flanagan struggles in business school, but finds both fulfillment and a career at the bar. Coughlin mentors him, and they put together their two-man bartending act and begin their rise. In Act 2, that meteoric rise comes to an abrupt halt when Coughlin sleeps with Flanagan's girlfriend for the sake of winning a bet. Here, two alpha males are in competition and cannot coexist. At the midpoint, Flanagan retreats to an island to tend bar to resort, offering an exotic tropical setting to the narrative. But he can't avoid his past as Coughlin finds him there. Granted, this relies on a huge coincidence that Coughlin would happen to vacation at the exact same resort that Flanagan now works, but we can overlook that. 
It's the only example of movie logic in all 105 pages of the script. At the resort, Flanagan meets his love interest, Jordan, a rich girl who wants to make it as an artist, not wanting to rely on her old man's money. Again, this reinforces the recurring theme and motif of capitalism's shortcomings. The two have a sex scene underneath a tropical waterfall, a moment tailor-made for a trailer, something that most scripts lack. Coughlin, who has since married a wealthy woman since last we saw him, is content to sit back and relax in the lap of luxury. Once more, he is a mentor to Flanagan, an example of the life that he wishes to lead. At the urging of Coughlin's wager, Flanagan sleeps with a wealthy older woman and takes up with her as her kept man. These recurring plot points make the narrative seem even more complete. Back in New York, Flanagan realizes that that life is empty and he seeks out Jordan. At the end of Act 2, he learns that Jordan is pregnant and wants nothing to do with him. He's without a job, and even worse, Coughlin then commits suicide. This is a pitch-perfect Dark Knight of the Soul moment that screenwriting students should pay attention to. Yes, the suicide and later suicide note are a bit convenient, but we can overlook it. It is one of the rare instances of movie logic in this script. Everything culminates in an above-average third act where Flanagan, inspired by Coughlin's suicide note, learns what is truly important in life, and runs to Jordan and professes his love. The two run off together as Flanagan finally puts together his bar, Cocktails and Dreams, paying off the plot point set up earlier in Act 1. Cocktail is a master's class in act structure and character beats. Every motivation is spelled out perfectly, leaving no detail unexamined or unexplained. The script is deceptively complex, a look at the underside of 1980s materialistic Madison Avenue-obsessed culture. It offers two types of conflict, man versus self and man versus man, as can possibly be all three if you count the waterfall as man versus nature. While not a bottle of Dom Perignon, Cocktail is a well-mixed daiquiri, sweet but with just enough kick to it. It also helps that Tom Cruise came attached to the script. Recommendation. Consider. So there you have it. The studio really seemed to like Cocktail. Uh, 5% on Rotten Tomatoes, but then I looked it up, and it cost $20 million to make and grossed 171.5 worldwide. So maybe we readers and screenwriting students don't know what the hell we're talking about. Along those lines, it's time for me to go off to work on the production of Thaw, the story of the detective who gets cryogenically frozen and unfrozen whenever it best suits the San Francisco PD. Uh, Yeah, it's starring Miles Teller, so maybe if I ever have a moment and see him at Craft Service, I can pitch him my idea of the Christian Leitner biopic, which he would be perfect for. So this might be the last episode for a while. I'd like to thank all of you for sticking with me for so long. I'd like to thank Noah Goldberg for providing the theme music for every episode. So my name is Max Davison. I have been your host. And remember, even the classics use another pass of notes.